Well, beloved listeners, she's been hailed as the world's first ecologist. Naturalist Maria Sybil Merian was also an acclaimed artist who in the 18th century broke new ground on multiple fronts. Oh, she went from Amsterdam to uh, South America to live in a doomsday cult. Peter the Great, Tsar of all the Russias, was a big fan of her work. And now historical novelist Melissa Ashley has been deeply uh, researching about this extraordinary woman for her latest book, The Naturalist of Amsterdam. And uh, we welcome Melissa who is in our Brisbane studio. We'll get into the details later, but broad brush first. Why should we know more about Maria? So Maria Sibylla Marion was born in 1647 and she's regarded as the world's first ecologist. She was also one of the very first Europeans to describe and study metamorphosis. So at the time, this is in the 17th century, Um, Insects were regarded as pestilence. Um, This came from the Bible and people didn't really know that insects uh, came from eggs and scientists didn't think them worthy of their observations. And Maria, when she was 13 years old, um, began rearing silk moths and she became very interested. She had her own nursery for them and she drew and observed their life cycle and that started a um, lifelong love of insects in her. She had a 50-year career. And so when she was a young woman, she produced two works of natural history Uh, The Metamorphosis of the Insects of Europe. So she studied uh, butterflies and moths and she drew them and painted them and she'd also studied them. And what was really unusual about what she did was that she depicted them on the plants and flowers that they fed on, uh, where they laid their eggs, where they spun their chrysalises. And this was just not done. You're talking about one of the most magnificent works of uh, natural history of its time, aren't you? Yes, I am. So when she was in her early 50s, Maria and her young daughter went to Suriname in South America and she studied its wonderful um, moths, its beetles, its butterflies, but also its lovely plants. And she made this incredible work of natural history called The Metamorphosis of the Insects of Suriname. It was published in 1705 And it's probably one of the best works that came out of that era, but it still retains its life and vitality to this day. 60 coloured plates. That's right. And they were A2 in size, so you can imagine how big they were. And some of the moths and butterflies that she studied were the size of dinner plates. Some of the beetles, you know, there was a Hercules beetle that was the size of a person's hand. Now, Melissa, I understand you actually have a copy. How did that happen? When Maria died, around the time Maria died, her works were sold by her daughter to Peter the Great. And Peter the Great was very entranced by Amsterdam, but also by Europe. And he wanted to bring some of its best artists, stonemasons, architects back to St. Petersburg. He founded the city in 1706 and he wanted them to come back and to enrich the country and to bring uh, Russia into the modern age. And he sent an envoy out to Europe and they came to Amsterdam and he was trying to buy up the wonderful natural history collections, the cabinets of curiosity from all sorts of rich merchants who had these in their homes. And he came across Maria Sibylla Marian's books. There was this wonderful 
album full of her original designs and compositions for her books, her books on European caterpillars and butterflies and her books on Suriname. But on top of this, she also had a number of books that never came to fruition. And so Peter the Great bought these and he also bought a very, very important document called the study book. And this was about 50 years old. Maria had started making entries into it when she was 13 uh, all the way up until the end of her life. And it was a document of the metamorphosis of particularly butterflies and moths. And so she would study them. She would rear them. She had a home nursery. She fed them. She spoke about, and this is in her study book, she spoke about how um, some of them were really fussy eaters. They only ate rose petals, whereas other of them ate whatever was given to them. So she had all these written recollections. And on top of this, she also made watercolour studies of them. And she used to chop up the watercolour studies, which were on vellum, and paste them in. And this material hasn't really been studied in the 70s, the study book and this album were published, but they were only published in a facsimile form and in about 250 copies. And so recently I found one of each, the only copies available in the market, and I purchased them. And they cost me about the amount of money I would have spent travelling to Europe. <laughs> well, that's, so, that's a great story. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I'm now, a rare book collector now. The, the context for uh, Maria's remarkable life and work was, of course, the Dutch Golden Age. What was happening then? Yes, this is the time of the Dutch Empire and it's pretty much the 17th century and it started out with the tulip fever that people might be familiar with and this is where the stock market was created and you had all these wonderful Dutch Golden Age painters of still life and this was Maria's pedigree but also you had the discovery of the new world and so the Dutch had colonies in Batavia, in Indonesia, in South Africa and also in Suriname, which is in South America. And you had the resources, the sugar, the textiles that flowed into Amsterdam's ports, but you also had this incredible wealth of natural history. So you had birds, butterflies, plants, shells, minerals... And they flowed in and this created this thirst for more and more novel and curious items. It actually spurred on natural history and it, it developed more and more and more. So this is really the birth of science. And you had collectors and then you had taxonomists who were interested in uh, learning all about it. And it was a very competitive race to name the new world. Now, into this uh, golden age is born a girl with a uh, strong artistic uh, pedigree, although she starts life in Germany. She does. She was born in Frankfurt in 1647 and her father's name was... Matthias Merian the Elder, and he was a very interesting person. He was an etcher and a printer and a publisher. And so he published some of the very first works on voyages into the New World in China, in India, and in the Americas. Uh, he published some books about alchemy, and he also published important natural history works. But when Maria was three, he died, and her mother remarried, and she married uh, a man called Jacob Merrill, and he was a still-life flower painter, although he was a minor painter. 
but he taught Maria how to paint and he also taught her his love of insects. Because flower painters at the time would often incorporate insects and birds and even lizards into their compositions. That's right, and Jacob Merrill um, reared them at home and so this is where uh, Maria fell in love with them. So Maria learnt these different dimensions of art, of publishing and uh, sales and science. She did. I mentioned sales because, uh, you know, stepfather was, a, was a, a businessman as well. That's right. And that, that was how it was in the day for, and it ended up being for Maria Sibylla Marion as well. You couldn't live on your art alone, as, as is the same for artists today. So he became an art dealer. Now, she marries her stepfather's apprentice. Tell us about that. Yes, so when she was 20, she uh, married a man called Johann Graf. He was 10 years older than her. And in her 20s, she was extremely productive with him. He was uh, an engraver and an etcher, and he was an artist himself, although not a still-life artist. He ended up painting cityscapes. And they worked together on Maria's very first books, which were studies of the life cycles of European butterflies and moths. And Maria was involved in the process of it from the very beginning all the way to the publishing. And so she produced 50 plates for each book and then 50 pieces of accompanying letterpress from her studies. And again, as we talked about earlier, she was this first ecologist. So she gathered all sorts of European herbs and flowers and plants associated with these insects' life cycles and painted the insects on them as well, which this, was extremely unusual. This is uh, Late Night Live and I'm having a lovely chat with uh, Melissa Ashley, whose uh, new historical novel is The Naturalist of Amsterdam. Now, uh, unheard of at the time, Volumes detailing scientific knowledge of insects were usually shown without their botanical or, or full ecological context, weren't they? Yes, that's right. So you had these fellows who were called armchair scientists and they were often very wealthy. Science at the time wasn't institutionalised, so lots of it was practised at home. And so they bought all these wonderful treasures that were coming back from the colonies and then they describe them and catalogue them and produce them in rows and columns according to the other insects that they resembled. So they were out of the context of the environment that they lived in. Now, Melissa, the marriage wasn't going that well, which introduces us to the doomsday cult. <laughs> That's right. Um, along with... Um, producing these two books. Maria and Johan had two children as well. And the marriage started to founder a few years after they'd put the books out. And Maria moved to Frankfurt with her mother and daughters. And then she moved them to Friesland in Holland. So they moved from Germany to Holland. And they joined a group called the Labardists. And they were a doomsday cult they believed that the end of the world was nigh. Uh, they were physically very severe. They, you know, abhorred the riches and the wealth of the Dutch merchants and they also believed that they should interpret the Bible for themselves. And this is an interesting point because it relates to uh, why Maria joined them because they also didn't recognise the laws of the land. They were a bit of a theocratic state. And because of this, they didn't recognise marriage laws. And so Maria was able to hold her head up 
in that society, having separated from her husband, she conspired with the elite. She has you had to become an elect in order to be part of the cult, and she kept her husband from joining it. One of the other reasons that the cult is really interesting for Maria is that's where she was first introduced to the wonders of Suriname. There were a a breakaway group of pilgrims within the cult who decided that it wasn't severe enough there, and they moved to Suriname to found uh, a new Jerusalem, to found a utopia. Unfortunately, as has been the case before, they were unsuccessful. Uh, They didn't know the timbers to use. They didn't know how to avoid insect bites and stings from plants. They, They just didn't know how to cope with this tropical environment that was completely different to Europe. Um, They started a sugar plantation and the enslaved Africans uh, escaped and and mutinied. But what was really interesting, nevertheless, was that they sent caches of uh, the wealth of Suriname back. And so all these wonderful butterflies and beetles and moths came back and Maria experienced them for the very first time and she seemed to have fallen in love with Suriname. Isn't it extraordinary how many cults and particularly doomsday cults pop up in that part of the world? Now, was uh, Maria shocked by the slavery and treatment of fellow humans? She was very shocked and and she uh, spoke about it in her writing in the Metamorphosis of the Insects of Suriname, criticising the Dutch for their cruelty and criticising their greed for sugar. Um, she couldn't understand it. Uh, she had abhorred it. And I think she's a very interesting case because she's a natural historian, so she's going to the colony for different reasons. And she's a woman as well, so she she didn't have a great big royal-funded or merchant-funded expedition. She funded it herself and she saw it with very different eyes, I think, to to many other people. She had a very different reason for being there. How long was she there? She, at first, she thought she was going to be there for five years. She ended up being there for 18 months. Uh, She caught malaria and had to come home, but she did make her way to the doomsday cult, the abandoned plantation that they'd started. It was called La Providencia and it was uh, 50 miles up river from Paramaribu, which is the capital of Suriname. And there she collected uh, all her beautiful insects and lots of plants as well, uh, many of which weren't known to Europeans. Uh, And so she employed guides to help her do this. Isn't it strange that a woman of such insight, of such a scientific precision, could get caught up in a cult like that? Yeah, it, it is very unusual. And I, and I think that uh, one of the interesting um, things about the doomsday cult was that although they weren't interested in the wealth and the material world around them, they did respect science. And so Maria was able to carry on her observations and her studies of insects and plants and even reptiles, while she was there in in the fens of Friesland. And it makes you wonder if perhaps her husband somehow stopped her studies and maybe that was why she uh, she had a problem with the marriage, but we don't know. Now, how did Peter the Great, the Tsar of all the Russias, hear about Maria's work? It seems that he heard about Maria through a fascinating person called Frederick Reusch. Frederick Reusch was 
an anatomist, he was a botanist, he was a surgeon, and he was also a collector. He had this extraordinary cabinet of human anatomical preparations, but also birds, reptiles, flowers, lizards, and insects as well. And he traded with Maria in insects. And Maria didn't want to have a collection of insects. Rather, she used them for her drawings and then she sent them off. But Around 1717, a number of Dutch collectors were selling their cabinets and Roish was one of them. And he was selling his cabinet to Peter the Great and then he interested Peter in Maria because she was very old and her daughter was thinking about um, settling her estate and thinking about her legacy. What was happening back home in his very own St Petersburg, Melissa? Peter the Great was an extraordinary person, a little bit notorious, uh, very driven. He really loved Dutch ingenuity and its hydraulics and its engineering prowess. And he visited a number number of times. He actually learnt, he was very interested in ships as well. He learnt shipbuilding. Um, He used to disguise himself as a peasant. He was six foot seven, so it was a bit tricky to um, to sit at the wharfs and, and learn how to build ships. He would pull the teeth of his soldiers. Um, he was this man who was very interested in natural history, very interested in the entire world. And he started this art and science academy. Uh, he wanted to uh, bring the peasantry, so to speak, of Russia into the modern world. He, he wanted to create literacy and he wanted to bring the best artisans, writers, engineers, natural historians over to St. Petersburg, to his court. The thought of having your teeth pulled (laughs) by the Tsar of all the Russias, I thought, quite beguiling. He was incredible. He didn't like all the pomp and ceremony of being a Tsar, so he actually had a fake Tsar and an envoy that would parade through the city uh, while he dressed as a, a normal person and hid away. I'm sorry, he had a body double? Yes, he did. A six foot seven body double? (laughs) I'm not sure about that. Melissa, there's enough here for three novels. (laughs) I I do a lot of research. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let us remind the listener again that it really was unusual for Maria to do all that she did. And as an artist, how did she do it? She was an extraordinary person and one of the things that made her able to do this was that she had a family firm. Uh, She had two daughters, Joanna and Dorothea, and she trained them in all of her skills. I think her skills hark back to her father and her stepfather, so that pedigree there. Um, She was able to design and compose all of the plates. She was able to etch them. Uh, She wrote the text She uh, had them printed. She had a printing press at one stage in her own home and then she had a shop and so she sold the books. She also had uh, students that she taught to paint and she sold art supplies as well. After Suriname, when she arrived in uh, Amsterdam, she professed herself a widow even though her husband was still alive in Nuremberg. That's right. In those days... uh, Everybody just about in Amsterdam and and in the Dutch Republic had paintings on their walls. It was very, very popular. And women were often trained by their, in their family firms, by their fathers and their brothers, if they showed some sort of um, ability 
in art, but becoming a professional artist was closed off to them. They weren't allowed to join the Guild of St Luke, which made you a professional artist and opened you up to a network of other artists. They weren't supposed to paint in oils and they didn't go on that trip to Rome uh, becoming journeymen when they finished their apprenticeships. So Maria pretended she was a widow in order to run an art shop and to have her art studio and to train and apprentice her daughters. So just to clarify, yes. the only way a woman could operate a business in the city was as a widow. That's right. And I suppose it's a little bit like it used to be for women in the early 20th century where um, you lost your job after you got married because you were taking a, a man's job. I like the way she used words. You uh, talk about her calling butterflies uh, summer birds. That's right. She called butterflies summer birds and moths winter moths. Uh, she had this interesting image in her books of she called the casing of a moth uh, a date pit and she wrote how when a moth was about to hatch, its little date pit writhed in her hands. And then she also looked at the date pit and it had a wrinkled abdomen and it had antennae that were folded and a little face. And she thought that it resembled a swaddled baby. As we know, we have chrysalises that are gold and silver and she called them her goldlings and her silverlings. Uh, and she also really liked nature's brush. She, she thought nature was an art, Mother Nature was an artist, just as she was. What an extraordinary story, Melissa, and uh, thanks for sharing it with us. I've been talking to Melissa Ashley, an historical novelist who really did some serious international researching and uh, discovering for her new book, The Naturalist of Amsterdam, and it's published by Affirm Press. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.